Hello, I'm Jan Kellison, also known as Miss Fish, and I'm one of the founding members of Warehouse 9. Uh, I'm a curator and an artist and an activist, and uh, in my work at Warehouse 9 I put all these different practices together. Um, and I'm Emma Muller and I have been connected to Warehouse 9 since 2012 um, and I'm currently a part of the core team that runs Warehouse 9 and I primarily focus on curating and producing at Warehouse 9. Um, cool. Um, hi Emma and Fish. Um, so to start, could you tell us a bit more about your work at Warehouse 9, um, how it all started and what the focus is in your programming? Warehouse 9 was uh, f uh, funded, founded, founded in 2007 as uh, an independent uh, art space and uh, we found this uh, room in this uh, derelict stable building that was up for rent and then we created an art association to run uh, uh, it as an art space from some principles. And uh, the principles were that we would work with uh, live art and performance and that we would have a specific focus on uh, gender political issues and work with queer feminist uh, uh, political issues and also work closely with communities and activism in, in the art practice. And then over the years the uh, platform and the venue became more established and we got some funding from the Arts Council and now in 2019, 13 years later, uh, we have become a more established uh, platform for uh, performance art and live art with a body political focus. Yeah, and because we have the 13 year history, so 13 years of programming and creating a space for queer art, um, we still work with this in our programming. Um, we have to say though that Throughout the all like entire thirteen years, we've never had a secured programming budget. So every curatorial decision that we take or people that we invite take is on a project to project basis. So thinking strategically is a privilege that we haven't really had the opportunity to take. Although saying that just that the fact that we are a venue that has a very specific profile is a strategy in itself because we do want to create a space for queer arts practices and artists to be written into art history um, because often we've found that um, we get written out of it so being able to have a space that just focuses on that with a long history is quite unique and mm. something which we continue to, um, I mean, this is why we continue to do what we're doing, so. Yeah. You've already kind of touched on it with this um, archive and being written out of s history, um, but why do you think a venue like this with a specific queer and live art focus is necessary in Copenhagen? 
Um, in Denmark, there has never been any uh, attention given to the cultural, uh, political history of uh, queer activism or the LGBT movement, and, and especially not in, in the arts and performing arts. We've had uh, a very uh, long history for the Danish Mix Film Festival, so in the in the in the film uh, genre there has been some focus but there has mainly been movies imported from the international scene so it's been quite easy to build a community around setting up a cinema where you present uh, films reflecting on uh, on LGBT history culture and, and lives but in the performing arts and in the fine arts there hasn't really been anything and there has not from the museums or from the archives either been any interest so there's a big void in the Danish cultural history there so um, when, when we first launched the big international uh, queer festival in 2006 uh, and created a, a big focus on a lot of aspects of queer politics in geography, in arts, in uh, health, in uh, LGBT history. Uh, when this festival was over, there was just a big void, what to do now. And then we were a small group who took the initiative to found Warehouse 9 because we needed a space that would be uh, kind of institutional in the way that we were in a formal building that we would uh, be present in this in the city also as a, as a cultural space but we would also have to be independent of the institution so we could continue to have be a living space with an art practice and a community practice to ensure that uh, that uh, there would be a serious attention given to uh, LGBT arts and, and culture. Mm. Also more specifically in terms of the performing arts landscape in Copenhagen, um, a lot of the power in recent years has been very centralized to big institutional theatres and the diversity and creating a healthier ecosystem in the performing arts landscape is not at a focus at the moment and by having artists run initiatives and smaller venues that are hyper locally situated this is like the you know the only way that we can see that the performing arts landscape can grow to become something healthier and more diverse and inclusive and so the fact that we're still here, 13 years later, in the heart of Copenhagen, <laughs> is um, like a political statement in itself in terms of the art landscape, but also in terms of um, LGBTQ history, because there really has been a lot of cuts funding-wise to ensure that venues like us don't exist anymore, and that's not just specific to Denmark, I think it's specific, uh, I mean it's, it's globally something that's been happening over the years, so um, we're, in some ways we're happy that we're still here yeah, yeah. and that we continue to sort of navigate through the different um, 
yeah, like limiting um, structures. Um, you often describe the people you collaborate with uh, Warehouse Nine as activists. Could you expand a bit on how you see art and activism intersecting? Um, I think that goes back to from when we started, because we started in the tail end of the uh, queer eruption movement, and we established this big uh, international queer festival in 2006. And through that we had a, a, a greater international network to other artists who were active to set up alternative spaces to discuss socially engaged arts to uh, combining arts practice with activist practice with with social work with community work and um, so so from the beginning the artists that we've been working with and inviting into residencies and been exchanging knowledge and experience with have had a, a similar um, practice and a similar idea in their respective countries and that became kind of the ethos of Warehouse 9 to uh, be a platform where we would uh, rather than just build art careers and produce arts um, in, in a more like like as commodities or as uh, uh, to develop CVs for people for or uh, and consumption and entertain people or, or like present artwork we would focus on the art practice as a dialogue, as a community and as a way of uh, actively being part of a political process and an international dialogue. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so a lot of the international artists that we invite also identify themselves as activists in one form or another and um, and we also like to, when we invite artists, focus on that they're not just um, practicing art for art's sake in our building, but they're also creating dialogues with our hyperlocal community and through like workshops or conversations or, for example, um, the artwork in itself. So like. Rosanna Cade doing her walking holding in this neighborhood a couple of years ago. Uh, Dina Ranchevic doing her car deconstruction um, outside here on the square as quite a political statement in terms of gender expressions but also in terms of city development. So we're very like aware of the discourses that they enter and that we're inviting them into. More practically, we also refer to activists as people who come in to Warehouse 9 to help make certain public events take place. And the reason why we also call them activists instead of, for example, volunteers, which a lot of people use, is sort of twofold. One is that we're very much against the whole um, volunteer uh, culture that's happening in Copenhagen specifically, but worldwide. Which, which tends to, uh, to uh, reach the level of systematic exploitation of mm -hmm. volunteers really, because they're written into budgets of big festivals yeah. and, and, and stuff, and we really want to change that note. Uh, 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 change that notion so so 
the 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 aspect of doing something more than just helping others in the production. Mm. You bring something in. You bring a topic, or you bring some of your own um, ideas mm. to the process. And then another part being that a lot of the people that do find us and come to us and help create Warehouse Nine, they are rooted in different ways in the LGBTQ. IA communities as activists um, and yeah so that's sort of why we refer to everyone who comes in as an activist um, because also just the thing of entering our space instead of an institutional theatre it's very different and we also are very much against the elitism of art exactly. so and that also implies uh, some, um, some, some, some problems because uh, activism is often opposed to, uh, to fine art, which is more elitist and for people who have uh, had the privilege of being able to go to uh, the performing arts school or the art academies and, and, and therefore we want to really uh, try to work actively to uh, make art practice more democratic and also more inclusive uh, and also to try to involve other um, segments of society in, in an active art practice. In line with what you've been saying for a while, you're focusing local local communities as well, you're kind of referring to um, hyperlocality or mm. hyperlocal. Can you just expand a little bit on that? Out of curiosity, that's mm. okay. Yeah. You had an idea about how to describe <coughs> this area because it's um, it is a very special yeah, area. Yeah, it's a special area and the reason why we're sort of referring to it as hyperlocal right now mm. is because um, the area that we're in, uh, the meatpacking district, mm. is a city in the city itself and within that, over the past couple of years, we've been caught up in a lot of social, political um, fabrications that have been very time-consuming and resource-consuming. And it has had the effect that um, we have become even more hyper-locally focused mm -mm. Um, as a pro and a con um, and because at the moment we're in a lot of negotiations that are very complex and that I'm sure we'll go into in later questions um, we prefer to use the term hyperlocal because we haven't for example this year had the resources and energy to always engage with what's happening um, in other boroughs of Copenhagen as much as we'd like to mm -hmm. um, and that's um, that's the limitation that we've been under but it's also the battle we've chosen yeah, yeah. for now um, so that's why very concretely we refer to hyperlocal as the area that we're in um, due to a lot of urban development issues. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And to explain a bit to the people who don't know so much about Copenhagen and the history of the gentrification in Copenhagen, the area we are in is one of the uh, older working class areas where the meatpacking district was kind of a very important uh, 
uh, new development around the turn of the century, just before the turn of the century. Uh, and uh, there was a lot of jobs created here and uh, it was uh, uh, also kind of feeding into the local neighborhood where a lot of the people who worked here also lived here and this uh, part of town has then gone through the gentrification process we've seen in so many other towns around the world like in Berlin, New York, whatever all the houses have been done up now they're sold to very high prices to uh, a complete new segment of uh, people in society a hipster culture has moved in there's hardly any working class people here anymore so the whole fabric of the living areas has changed completely uh, and uh, we now have gated communities and uh, this area is now post-industrial in the way that the meatpacking district is turning into what the city claims to be a melting pot between creative industries, community groups, uh, new businesses, nightclubs, uh, gourmet restaurants, uh, schools and uh, that's a very pretty picture that the city tries to paint of this area and the intentions are there but in reality we are faced with a lot of daily problems because in fact this area suffers from the problems where a city tries to mix uh, private rentals uh, of public space to certain uh, big players uh, and then uh, public spaces and the develop of pub development of public spaces for tourism and the local communities but the local communities have changed so much so they are kind of just novo rich hipsters who have moved in and we are part of this whole negotiation of public space and the development of public space and to, to mention an example is that I was at a round table discussion at Copenhagen Contemporary uh, a month ago invited by the mayor of Copenhagen to discuss the future of Copenhagen as a cultural city with an edge and we were kind of the edge <laughs> and there at this round table I was sitting with top architects with uh, directors of the Contemporary Art Museum, directors of theatres, uh, really big city development um, projects and so we get involved in these uh, really high profile discussions and debates and the, and the narrative of the city is that they facilitate this kind of uh, diverse uh, model of the public spaces but in reality our place is still very precarious we are underfunded we have to struggle for our survival in this area from, from day to day because there's so many different interests represented here. For example, we have um, our nearest neighbor is a big uh, exhibition space that does uh, like uh, big commercial events like MTV awards and uh, they uh, like uh, big companies for a thousand people have company parties and they have rented the whole square around, they, they have contracted the square in front of our building to them. So we have to constantly negotiate around the huge productions. And on the other side, the city has now installed a facility for uh, uh, 
substance abuses and help it where you can uh, like uh, shoot up hard drugs uh, safely and hygienically which in itself is a super important project and we would like to help but they have not financed a proper uh, follow-up program and a, a social recovery program so we are faced with all the negative consequences of having a lot of uh, substance users surrounding our building as well so we are caught up in a lot of city development problems and issues where we would like to help but we don't really have the resources we also uh, want to work with with our issues and we would like to create diversity for for queer people and marginalized people in public spaces and this issue is now also becoming part of this very very complicated uh, discussion i think just a quick thing what's important to say as well is that we nearly lost the space uh, due to city development as well in 2007 yes yes no in 2012 no we, several times yeah. we were actually <laughs> because of funding or because of restructuring or because yeah. of mismanagement of the contracts of the building um, and that has been an ongoing uh, like uh, challenge in, mm -hmm. in our in our fights to uh, to actually uh, to, to continue working here and keeping the space, so in 2017 we managed to um, to win a contract on the building. So we now have a legally binding contract with 10 years notice, uh, which means we can now work uh, long term. And the reason we got that was because the city council had installed a. a, a program called uh, Strategic Welfare, uh, uh, it was called Strategic Welfare Smart Investments in Creative Partnerships and that meant that you centralized all the community and culture spaces and then you could save a lot of money and in that process they wanted to move us to another community space which was much smaller so they could take out over our building and earn a lot of money to uh, do rentals. So we have also been faced with a lot of, uh, like, uh, yeah, uh, good night power games and restructuring and and, and political battles. Um, parallel to all this work and this like hyper local focus, like you call it, um, you're also one of, well, one of the only, or maybe actually the only venue bringing live artists from abroad into the city. Um, and having that focus in live art and maintaining a quite strong international focus with your program. Um, what's your approach when trying to balance this hyper-local and international focus? Um, and how can they or how do you use them both as strategies in the activist work you're doing for the community here in Copenhagen? Or specifically here in... That's two questions, but we could maybe yeah. I think um, we, we're not the only um, well, organization that invites live artists to Copenhagen. There are other um, initiatives and organizations like HOUT and Live Art DK who also have a performance art live art focus. Um, but we are the only um, venue that focuses on inviting 
primarily queer live artists mm-hmm. um, and that we have been doing for 13 years and that is unique to Copenhagen that we have that 13 year history um, where we've ongoingly been inviting artists to um, enter into dialogues with our local or hyperlocal community. Um, the way we balance it is uh, uh, sounds very strategic, but um, it's more of uh, navigating and negotiating from project to project, mm. and that has some positives and negatives in itself because we, as we mentioned before, don't have a reoccurring uh, funding budget for programming. We look at each program as a case-by-case sort of uh, initiative and um, try to, to look at what is important to us and to the wider local community at the time of us making or creating a program. Mm. Um, And the way that it often happens is that we have a very extensive national and international queer network and live art network. So we often sort of um, go through our networks to invite artists. Another way that we do it is also that we engage with conversations that are happening locally and political issues that are happening locally and sometimes also respond to previous year's programs because we are very aware that we try to create safe spaces for um, conversations rooted in queer and feminist practices to take place, but that doesn't make us exempt from um, also falling, you know, under certain, um, yeah, like also making mistakes, we also make mistakes. So, um, yeah, I mean, we, we always encourage artists to engage in conversations with local artists or local activists or local thinkers Um, and this is a way for us to sort of make sure that a local queer community can meet with an international queer community Mm. Um, so our focus is actually on conversation um, and thinking in terms of how we balance uh, the local and the international that yeah okay I think, yeah and I think that's also why our building becomes so important because the building is listed class A yeah. and that means that it's very restricted what you can do in the building and we're quite happy about that because the history of the building and the story that it's the old stables where the cattle was having their last transit before going to the slaughterhouse mm-hmm. makes you reflect on uh, the the Danish society and the environment and also all the gentrification issues because mm-hmm. this is now a post-industrial area and what happened to the area and basically we invite international artists in to not just come and present their work mm-hmm. uh, but actually to uh, engage in a process where they 
develop um, some work that also uses the history and the architecture of the building as the material in, in, in the works. Mm -hmm. And also the building is a space where our communities feel safe and feel at home and they're connected. So uh, it has been quite easy for us uh, when we've had ambitious artists who uh, wanted to work with local communities that we could facilitate uh, that they could uh, be, be part of, of the work. For example, Emma curated uh, Rosanna Case Walking Holding and there was like a workshop connected to that where our communities were, were partaking and and also Dina Ronsevic's Carti Construction which we could have outside in the square and that was only possible because we have access to the uh, public space around our buildings mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's all completely interconnected. But also in recent years we um, gained the rental of um, Gallery One which is an old historic stable building and which as part of our artistic programming and programming as a venue we offer as a site-specific space for artists to engage with. So one um, program that has been ongoing for some years now is our iPad festival. It's by no means secured, um, <laughs> but luckily we've always managed to sort of find resources for the festival. Um, so it take, takes place in April every year and last year we invited an artist from Turkey called Lemang to engage with the space together with um, her collaborator and artist Pinar and they created a durational work that responded to the history and the architecture of the building. Um, so and, Yeah, and also uh, actual uh, contemporary uh, queer political issues from Istanbul. Mm -hmm. So in that way they connected uh, mm -hmm. issues from Istanbul with the history of Copenhagen, mm -hmm. which was a really interesting dialogue also then with our, mm -hmm. with our audience. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so it's also just to say that the way that we sort of try and balance it is not always just a conversational dialogue but also an aesthetic dialogue and a historical dialogue. Um, so we try to, I mean everything we do is rooted in Warehouse 9 as a building. We are a building mm -hmm. and a venue and um, the building <coughs> frames everything we do. We're very practical, we're very mm -hmm. DIY, but we also have the ambition of opening the building up to the outside and we are on street level because the building is all on one plane. So sort of the architecture of the building in many ways frames the way that we program as well and the ambitions that we have of the space. So. And to unleash that potential of the site-specific building and the surroundings uh, we are dependent on the visions and the ideas and the energy that uh, visiting artists bring into it and that they're willing to invest their art practice in, in our surroundings. And we have seen so many great works where people really have just 
from their own interest and their own initiative have, have come with amazing projects. Mm, um. mm. And then, I mean, a, a side to that is that we have, apart from our, the artistic programs that we do, we also have social programs. So, um, <coughs> since the beginning of Warehouse Nine, there has been uh, a lot of activist groups initiating projects in the venue. Um, so it started with Tea Lounge, mm. which you can talk a bit about, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Uh, and then now we have a group called Queer Cut, which um, do monthly to bi-monthly um, hair salon and cafes for non-binary identifying people. And we also have Queer Yoga, which comes in around once a month. Yeah. Um, and piano bar, and we have a vegan potluck, and so the alongside the art program, we have this sort of community projects that are happening, and that are initiated by um, activists. And it's important for us to state that uh, in these aspects, we really strive to be facilitators and not uh, to uh, organize things top down or influence the, the initiatives because it should be a dialogue otherwise it doesn't uh, become a, a proper engagement of, of, uh, of the local communities and also the activists around Copenhagen and uh, in our 13 year history I, I think I'm very proud of the fact that we still have a lot of very uh, young artists, very engaged community uh, people with new projects coming to us and feeling that they have uh, a possibility of actually developing an actual project with us. For example, Queer Cut, they came and said, uh, can we make this uh, social space? Uh, we need some uh, equipment, we need some, uh, we have these ideas because we hate going to the hairdressers because they always misgender us or it's just a, not a nice social situation. Uh, and then we were at a, a meeting and we said, well, we actually have a little pot of money here. I know a stylist and a hairdresser so he can help you to consult on what to buy, like buy buses and how to actually some direction and how to set up a salon. And then within a month, it was up and running. So from idea to action, uh, that's, we, we actually really try to make it very fast and very accessible. Uh, and now it's running as a permanent uh, event. Uh. Um, um, you were already talking a little bit about it, um, like about this intersection when the artist who had an iPath last year doing that site-specific work brought issues from Istanbul and kind of brought them into the building. Um, and also, I'm wondering, like, across, since you've started, things in in terms of, like, globalization have in increased so much, and it's such a part of our lives, and it's such a part of, like, queer identity. Also, with, like, because it's much easier than it was 10 years ago if you've got a certain amount of financial privilege or privilege in any sort to go to another country and be in a city where there's a bigger queer community mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. even using the internet and connecting with mm -hmm. other queer people. Um, how, like seeing this and from this context specifically, how do you think that globalization has affected and contributed to 
um, I guess, well, positively or negatively, but a lot to the assimilation of community events like Pride or of like queer identities and communities in general. Do you mean locally? Here? Yeah, sort of mm. locally and then more in generally. Yeah. Like what has it done to like local queer people um, like spending time with each other and because I feel like this space is doing that mm. where it's like kind of a space where local queer communities can use um, but how do you think that having access to that somewhere else or mm. via online or whatever is kind of yeah how do you think that mm. balance happens and how has it changed I think it's uh, it's easier said than done because yes we have social media yes we have access to cheaper flights we have more people who are privileged that they can move uh, and they can partake in uh, a global dialogue but then when it comes to practice that we actually have to engage people here and and you actually have to do it it is still uh, not happening on that larger scale because we, for each residency that we make, where we bring an artist here to work, we have to set up and find the money, find the resources, and uh, we have people who are like traveling and, and coming to us, uh, but we have to set it up so that they can they can meet with the communities and it has to be on the right day and they have to have the possibility of staying here in Copenhagen. Uh, Copenhagen is now becoming as expensive to live in as in London. So just finding uh, a home uh, is, is really difficult. So um, we are trying to facilitate these meetings and we're trying to make it possible in practice. But it's, it's still like, um, it, it takes effort and it takes uh, some, some work. Yeah, I'm not I, I think as well, like, um, just reflecting on, because it's um, it's Pride now in Copenhagen, yeah. um, that a lot, we've seen a lot um, recently, um, specific to Denmark, that a lot of sort of the LGBT um, events that are happening, um, are very market driven, mm. so like a focus on marketing. Um, and for us, this is very problematic because we see this taking place, and sometimes we've been consultant on like advising um, different organizations to invite artists. Mm. But then in practice, we found out that those artists have not been uh, taken care of in the right way. Um, and we do not have the marketing budget, but one thing that we do try our best to focus on is that we will not actively invite someone unless we feel that we can take care of them. And that's something that we feel um, with globalization, I guess the negative part of that is that um, caretaking has sort yeah. of disappeared. Exactly, and we believe that when you invite artists or activists to work in our 
space and with our communities, then you also have a responsibility for uh, taking care of uh, yeah, the situation here, but also a, a follow-up situation, that it's not just uh, some kind of global queer tourism mm -hmm. or it's, it's in-out, it's mm -hmm. a longer-lasting conversation and uh, it should actually lead to some 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 change or it should lead to some kind of result not that we are like result based but it should have a meaning and um, it should not just be for for example yeah tourism or entertainment uh, like uh, you see the big uh, show programs of the international prides and in two years we're going to have a world pride and we're going to have like world games as well so it's going to be a huge international LGBT tourism event happening here and we are already now strategically trying to say how can we use that to make more long-lasting change for example in the city development that we can use that big event to create a safer city a more diverse city and also hopefully to secure Warehouse Nine's position uh, in, in the city development and as a platform and as an archive and hopefully also to get some money so we can uh, produce some work because mm. we have very little access to production money as well compared to the institutional theatres. Uh. Yeah, and I think, I mean, when when Fish says result, I think the result is a lot of the time that the artists that we work with, we create long-term relationships with. So Le Mang, for example, who spoke about who did the site-specific work at IPAF this year. The year before that, um, they were invited on a residency together with a visual artist, Emir Akaya, and we're still in dialogue with them. And it's artists that we like to create dialogues and relationships that are ongoing so that it's not this, mm -hmm. um, you know, like consumption culture that you see in mm -hmm. some mainstream art landscapes. Um, and also, just to go back to World Games and all of that, um, we've been saying LGBT while referring to that, because one thing which we always focus on is to also say that the LGBT doesn't actually represent the whole scale of identities under the umbrella and um, unfortunately this is still something that we're seeing from the um, more mainstream organizations um, and we therefore often want to be able to pr provide an alternative space for other identities that fall under the LGBT umbrella to... But it's not really represented yeah. <laughs> in the bigger events. And that's one of the positive sides of the globalization. That is that the smaller initiatives that are critical to, for example, the pride moving from being commercial and commodified, uh, they often go unseen and they are often working in alternative environments like for example us or uh, other uh, community-based organizations and uh, queer groups but through the globalization it's easier for us to connect to other small groups for example in Finland or Estonia or mm -hmm. we established this Nordic Baltic queer art network for 
artists and activists who were, were critical and self-critical to, uh, to uh, queer and LGBTQI culture. And through that we've gained a lot of knowledge and uh, a network for uh, like um, individual artists but also organizations who who work differently than the than the, the, the pride movement and 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 through this uh, we we actually can connect to many smaller initiatives around the world and exchange knowledge and um, throughout the years Warehouse 9 has been a home for many migrant artists and local communities that come from migrant backgrounds. <coughs> how is this work reflecting on the experience of being a migrant in Copenhagen? And how are migrant artists responding to the ever-growing anti-immigrant sentiment across the country and Europe? That's a very... Um that's a very emotional question for us, I think, and it's also a very difficult question because uh, we are not uh, experts and we are often not able to take the responsibility to go into helping migrants or creating real change in the very, very tough and hostile migration debate that is in Denmark. Uh, but we have tried in several uh, occasions to do what we can and we have realized uh, the on our own bodies and through our own involvement that uh, the situation has become worse and worse and through our uh, former government uh, we, we saw some very very tough uh, and very dis discriminating uh, programs being developed and um, we have done what we could to create dialogue about it and also to uh, create uh, curatorial programs where we would on an expert basis discuss these issues uh, for example bodies beyond borders you did with mary osborne i don't mm -hmm. know if you um, yeah uh, i'll touch on it briefly so bodies beyond borders um, took place in 2017 and it was a collaboration that I did together with Mary Osborne as a our curatorial collaboration called Osborne and Miller. Um, and that looked very specifically at um, the politics of territory. Um, it took place here in Warehouse 9 because, well, A, we were privileged enough to have access to the space. And also because um, the collaboration formed when um, when um, Brexit was decided, and Mary and I wanted to continue working post me moving back to Denmark. And in both cases, especially in Denmark, the immigration laws at the times had changed so drastically um, due to the refugee refugee crisis as well and Denmark putting up some very inhumane um, border controls. Um, so a way that um, Mary and I decided to respond to that in a, in a way which Warehouse 9 also responds to that is that we never claim to be experts. Um, but we do respond as artists to situations that are happening 
and we try and create spaces, either curatorial or physical spaces, where conversations that are uncomfortable and difficult can take place. Um, and in the case of the programs that we do, be it Bodies Beyond Borders or IPATH, we always try and invite artists or experts that have specific experiences that are lived mm. to do with migration or um, whatever topic we touch upon. It's definitely not specific to being a migrant or migration loss. Um, and for IPATH we for example decided to invite Yunsan Gulash to speak from her artistic practice um, as being um, an a Korean adoptee in Denmark and in Bodies Beyond Borders we had a conversation where we created dialogue between LGBT Denmark um, representative and a university expert in migration law um, to speak together with um, FISH and to also respond to works by Alicia Rogalska and Nuria Guell. Um, and so I, in many ways what we're trying, well what I'm trying to say, is that um, as artists what we have at our disposal is to respond to something in a critical manner. Mm. Um, but legally and to take legal battles we've tried to do before. Um, with various examples um, but what we found while doing those more socially legal uh, campaigns was that because we um, operate very precariously it took um, we just didn't have the long-term resources to actually keep on fighting those legal battles mm. um, so we've we've moved away from the more active legal campaigning mm. uh, and are now focused more on the sort of knowledge producing and um, history writing and creating a space aesthetically and uh, for art and activism to merge. Yeah. Yeah, I can give uh, concrete examples yeah. of that. We uh, we were involved in a very very actual uh, case. Uh, there was a trans uh, trans person from uh, Guatemala that was going to be uh, deported from Denmark, uh, even though reports would say that uh, the, the it is a very dangerous place to live as an open trans uh, woman in in Guatemala. And uh, even though these reports in the case were taken by the LGBT Denmark, uh, it was not. It was dropped. So um, she, Fernanda Milan, was going to be deported <coughs> and came to us, and we uh, made uh, an art action here, where we created uh, some pop-up performances and some social disruption, and it became developed into uh, larger demonstrations, and there came a lot of media attention to it, and. The case was reopened again, and uh, Fernanda actually, in the end, got uh, asylum in Denmark. 
So we were, as artists, actively part of contributing to a campaign that, that in the end uh, made some change. And in that, uh, in that process we also became uh, partners with uh, LGBT Denmark who are an organization with lawyers and, and they realized they needed to reopen the case, which they did. So in that sense we were proving also to the other organizations that artists actually can make a change in, in cases that were like to others hopeless. Uh, but it also took a lot of resources and the whole um, the whole follow-up process of uh, then how to uh, create social security for Fernanda and job positions and, 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 and a, a possibility to develop a life in Denmark. We were not able to, to uh, help with this. Another example was Medea, who was a Lithuanian-Russian trans woman that came here and had to live in a shelter for, for men because they wouldn't accept her gender identity as a woman. And uh, she uh, was basically homeless and stateless uh, because she couldn't go back to Lithuania or Russia. And we tried to create a job for her here, which we did. Uh, but that would only, because we ourselves don't have real jobs, so we, we were kind of putting some hours together and trying to push the Danish social system into taking over from there and create a real job and, and making a safe social situation for her in Denmark. But it, uh, it fell because uh, nobody could lift the case and we didn't have the, the, uh, basically the resources to do social work on that level or negotiation with lawyers and um, uh, immigration laws. Thank God uh, after these uh, cases there has been a new organization formed mm. in Denmark which is LGBT Asylum in which one of our former board members, uh, Michael Nebeling, is now working and they, uh, they've been successful in doing really important political work. They've been fundraising and now they do a very, very serious and specialized uh, program in supporting uh, asylum seekers globally uh, who are threatened because of their gender identity. Mm -hmm. So I think that's yes, kind of, yeah. yeah.